Hi there, and welcome to another episode of the Future of Jewish podcast. I'm your host, Joshua Hoffman. On this episode, I am joined by Jody Bromberg. She is the CEO of 18 Doors, whose mission is to support interfaith families in exploring Jewish life and to strengthen Jewish organizations' understanding of interfaith inclusion. Prior to joining 18 Doors, she was a corporate attorney in the Philadelphia area. Enjoy my conversation with Jody Bromberg. Jody, wow, this is really, really exciting to have you on the podcast. I've been following you personally, really, for for definitely the last several months. Um, I remember I, I read something, I believe it was in a Jerusalem Post article, a quote you gave, and I said, wow, who is this person? And I looked you up in 18 Doors, and we'll talk all about, about all of that uh, in this episode. Uh, but first of all, thank you for joining me. And second of all, why don't you start by giving us some background, who you are, where you came from, everything that, that led to where you are today. Sure. Josh, I am just so thrilled to be here. So thank you for that. And I will say I am, I think like many Jewish communal professionals and leaders, I am an accidental Jewish communal CEO. And I came to this work really when I was, I have a background as a, as a corporate attorney and my best friend and I had a boutique practice that worked with lots of nonprofit clients and small businesses. And I always felt like my nonprofit clients got to have all of the fun that I was like in the corner doing the lawyering, which is really, which is important. It's, it's important to have high quality lawyers in the world. And yet at the same time, I was like, they seem to be having so much fun. And so my business partner and I looked at each other one day and said, is this really what you want to be doing for the next 30 or 40 years of your life? Because we were at the point where we either needed to expand and bring on additional people because of our workload and capacity, or we needed to figure out what our exit strategy was. And for both of us, the answer was no. And for her, it was uh, her family's real estate business up in New England. And for me, I started thinking about where I had started my career, which was really in the nonprofit world. And I knew I wanted to get back to mission-driven organizations. And I started making a list of the causes that I felt really passionate about. And one of them was around interfaith families and Jewish life. And in this kind of the shirt just moment at the same time interfaith families ceo ed case which is now 18 doors was getting ready to step down and there wasn't an heir apparent on the in the existing staff and so they began looking for a president who was a, which was a staff position that was going to come on and work with ed as ceo for a couple of years and then eventually begin, uh, assume the title of CEO. And so he and I became, began talking and I talked to staff, I talked to board members, I think it was like seven or eight rounds of interviews. And I ended up joining Interfaith Family as a president and working with Ed for a couple of years and then becoming the CEO in 2015 um, and haven't looked back since. And it has been such a joy. And I always say it is a, a job that doesn't feel because I think it really is a privilege to be able to do something that you're that you feel really passionate about, and also um, is a way to support yourself or your family. Definitely. So, 
you know, talk to us on, maybe on the personal side, because your, your Judaism didn't start in 2015, I guess, or your Jewish journey. So talk to us about, um, I understand from, from what I read about you, that you come from an interfaith marriage and family. Talk to us about what that experience has been like specifically for you. And, and maybe if obviously now running 18 doors, I'm sure you have many stories about other such families and partners, but talk to us about it from a very personal angle to the extent that you feel comfortable doing so. Oh, sure. Absolutely. So I am, I say I'm part of a second generation interfaith family. My mom converted to Judaism before she married my dad, who was born and raised Jewish. And then subsequently myself and my two older brothers were raised Jewish in a reformed congregation in Springfield, New Jersey, a little suburban town with at that point, a pretty substantial Jewish population. And I always would, I would go to my grandma's house who lived in the next town over and for Christmas and Easter. And occasionally she'd take me to her Russian Orthodox church. And I always grew up really understanding who I was as a Jew. And yet also would run into these situations where I would explain my family makeup or I was really proud that my mom had converted. And someone said, would say like, you're not really Jewish, you're like half Jewish. And I would always, for whatever reason, I would always think like, they just don't get it. Like, why are they not really understanding my family? Like, of course I'm fully Jewish. And it wasn't until many years later in my young adult life that I began to understand maybe some of the nuance of what I experienced as, as a, a young child growing up um, in Jewish life. And so I think that was really, for whatever reason, a lot of, I think the, what often interfaith couples or families absorb as negativity or as othering, for whatever reason, I think in many ways bounced off of me. Um, and then I remember asking our rabbi, who's also a dear friend, to marry myself and my wife who's Catholic. And I remember, I, I sent him an email and I remember my palms got all sweaty as I was typing it. And I just thought like, I knew he officiated at interfaith couples weddings, but I thought, I don't know, is he, is he gonna say yes? And I was so anxious and so nervous about that moment. And this was like a dear friend of ours. This was not a stranger. This is someone I had a close relationship with. And it was really, for me, a little bit of an aha moment of when I began to scratch the surface of some of what, emotionally in that personal way, of what often interfaith couples and families talk about. And, um, and then fast forward, I, you know, I always say every branch of my family tree is an interfaith branch from um, my sister-in-law on my wife's side who married someone who is Jewish and she's Catholic. Uh, he's, he has uh, passed away since of blessed memory. And um, to my mother-in-law and stepfather-in-law who are a Catholic Jewish couple, to my older siblings who, uh, who were raised Jewish and each married someone who is uh, who is Christian or Catholic, it is literally like every step of my family tree and, and I think plays out in really interesting ways and highlights some of the diversity that we see in Jewish life today. So I want to ask you a personal question because 
Um, you know, I was born into a Reformed Jewish household. My parents are both Jewish, and we were raised in a solely Jewish home, of course. And my parents, you know, are quite open-minded. Um, I do remember conversations around, like, why is it important to marry a Jew? And it was never around, like, Jewish continuity or, like, anti-Semitism or, like, any of that stuff. It was, like, I specifically remember my mom saying, it comes down to values, right? And like Jewish values are not always there or to the extent that they are in, in non-Jewish homes, so to speak. And it doesn't mean that non-Jewish homes have bad values, just different values. Um, and she said, you know, when you're raising kids, especially like values are everything. And like, if you have inconsistent values, then that can create problems between the partners, between the kids and so forth. And so I would just love to ask you, um, you know, what has your personal experience been like with your family, um, both, you know, you as a daughter and now as a parent, uh, and, and sort of how would you respond or react to my mom's advice, if you will? It's an it's a interesting framing of wanting to make sure that your child marries someone whose values reflect your own and what you hope theirs to be. And I think that that is often one of the things that Jewish parents talk about with their children. In our household, I will say, um, my wife, Courtney, if she was sitting here, she would tell you about one of the first conversations that we had early on, much too early, that really relative to where the relationship was where um, we had just had like one of our first big arguments. And we were at that point as a couple where um, it's that fork of the road moment where either you are going to break up or it is going to get more serious. And we were at that moment we were sitting, I was in, we both lived in Philadelphia at the time and we're sitting at my dining room table. And I said, look, the thing that you need to understand is if we're going to continue to date, I want a Jewish home and Jewish children and a puppy. And if you can't give me those things or you're not interested in being committed to those things, then we probably should stop dating. And she sat back and said, I, I can't believe we're having this conversation this early on. And also that's something I really need to think seriously about. And she proceeded really over a period we continued to date really seriously and um, and lived together. And she really thought long and hard about what she was open to and what she was committed to. And it was her own journey of thinking through, because um, my wife is the type of person that once she commits, she is all in, there is no half. And um, she was never interested in converting, but she, she knew that if she was going to make the commitment, that she was going to make the commitment. And, and she did. And I think that for everything, um, that has been the game changer for our life. Because I think the ability to have a hard conversation early on and say, this is what's important to me. Um, and for her, likewise, to say, this is what's important to me. So for her, um, she loves Christmas. 
And it was always something that was really important to her growing up. And as a cultural, spiritual holiday, not necessarily about the religious aspects of it, but she, she knew that if she made this commitment, she also didn't want to give up raising um, her kids with Christmas. And for me, that made sense, right? That we all, we all have to give a little in, um, in relationships and that it's a constant journey and compromise. And so I think for us, for me, I thought, well, of course, that makes sense. And my kids and my home uh, as a Jewish home and my kids as uh, raising those Jews, not dependent on one day a year. And if it is, I'm doing something wrong. Right, it's about 365 days a year. Do they know they're Jewish? Are we doing the things to transmit um, Jewish values and Jewish wisdom to them in ways that they understand and Jewish joy? Because that was really a, a big part of it for me. Um, and so, you know, I think once that happened, we continue to talk about what's important to us and continue to talk about how we make decisions around Jewish life and community. In our, in our home, in our community. And I think that that's one of the things that people often mistake. Uh, you know, we often hear that rabbis ask interfaith couples, you know, are you willing to raise your children exclusively Jewish? I always think that's like, it's an interesting question to ask, but couples can't possibly predict all of the twists and turns that their lives take together. And um, to ask them how their, their future selves will, will or won't make decisions, I always think is like a little wrongheaded and that there ought to be, um, there ought to be other questions and conversations that, that rabbis think about in that context. Um, because it is a journey and it is an ongoing conversation and it's not, as is all of life, right? You know, we, we change and grow and, in new and interesting ways. Um, and I will say from my parents' perspective, my mom took the perspective that she wanted to really be clear that we all knew that we were Jewish and that our home was exclusively a Jewish home. Uh, and I remember my uncle and my cousin who are not Jewish came to live with us uh, for a short period of time. And it, the time was over Christmas and my mom was really conflicted because she knew my cousin is Christian and believes in Santa and um, is really, was excited that Christmas was coming in. And she thought like, I can't have a Jew, uh, Christmas tree in my home. This goes against everything that uh, I believe and um, what I want my Jewish home to be. And so she made the decision to, she thought, okay, well, he can have a Christmas tree, but it'll be in the basement, which is finished, right? We had a finished basement, but that was her way of like compromising. But I think it also was a really challenging moment for her. I haven't talked about it. Uh, it was obviously many, many years ago when we were young, um, but I haven't talked about it with her since. And I'm sort of curious about how she thinks about or reflects on that now. Well, thank you so much for sharing those intimate details. Um, you know, one of the things that I find interesting, you talked about um, your wife committing and and it's by choice, right? It's no one sort of forcing her. I think even when you, when a rabbi asks that question, it feels a bit forced uh, as opposed to sort of a natural progression of things. And like, I think people when given some level of freedom, assuming that they're, they're committed themselves 
will end up probably doing what the rabbis want without the rabbis having to sort of uh, guilt or socially uh, influence, if you will, to put it nicely, uh, how couples do things. Um, one of the things that I noticed growing up, I did have a few friends in our Jewish community in Los Angeles um, who, whose parents both converted. And I found that the converted parent was actually, quote unquote, much more Jewish and quote unquote, a much better Jew than the other parent that was born Jewish. Um, and, I'm, and I see you shaking your head here for, for the listeners who, who don't have the video portion or just letting, listening to the audio. Um, you know, one of the things that I find very ironic is that it seems like with you shaking your head, that seems to be the case in a lot of places where when people make the decision to, you know, either convert or not convert, but raise their kids Jewish, or if they don't have kids, but live in a Jewish home, whatever you want to call it, um, that, that feels to me like a much more strategic way of um, Jewish continuity, if you will as opposed to this very rigid box that we in the Jewish world often put people into. We do it in Israel, by the way, too, not just in the diaspora. Um, and I guess what I'm just wanting to know from you is like, like, do the rest of the Jewish world not see what I just explained? Like how, for me, very obvious. And again, I'll use the word strategic it is to really allow people to have their own path. And whether it's conversion or whether it's something else, um, those people in many ways are way more actively Jewish, way more proud to be Jewish, way more interested in diving into the very deep treasure trove that is Judaism um, and all the things that come with that. I mean, how do we get to a place where more of the quote unquote quintessential Jews can understand that are, are Jews by choice, if you will, are not only our brothers and sisters, but incredibly important to Jewish continuity. Yeah, Josh, I think you hit on such an important point, which is ultimately we're all Jews by choice, right? How we connect to Jewish life and Jewish values and community or not is an ongoing decision for all of us. And I think when the larger Jewish community, I think often the, the questions that you ask about, well, what decisions are you going to make? How are you going to do X or Y um, in a way that is filled with often a tremendous amount of pressure that, that, that those questions are based in fear, right? They're about a fear of, um, of assimilation, a fear of um, dwindling connected Jewish life or Jewish donors or Jewish members. And they're not really, I think, about the, the couple or family that are in front of them. Um, because if they were, I think that often the questions or decision might be different or more organic as you, as you suggest. And that, not to, to be paternalistic here, but when, as a parent of three young kids, I know that so much of their life is about what they have, feel like they have control over doing. And that the more they feel a sense of control over their lives, um, 
generally the happier and compliant, more compliant they are. And so if I want them to eat vegetables, do I ask, you know, do you want broccoli or carrots? I don't ask, do you want vegetables? And <laughs> I think um, there's an analogy, <laughs> there's an analogy not to compare at all any um, adults with their own sense of agency to my young children. But the analogy is that we lead with often with force or pressure when what we ought to be leading with is what are the opportunities to engage in something that's meaningful to you um, that Judaism or Jewish values have to offer? And what are the ways that Jewish life dovetails with other things that are important to you. So you want your child to grow up with a sense or you want to explore your own commitment to social justice and repairing the world. Well, let's talk about what Judaism has to say about that. And I think too often we are trying to put people in a particular box and have them behave in a particular way um, that maybe suits the outcomes that we believe we're driving for, but aren't necessarily the outcomes that are important to that couple or family. And I think that's at the heart of it is like, if, if couples or families or people aren't interested in what you have to offer, then you have to really think seriously about why that is. And some of that might be generational trends and some of that might be particular to the couple or family in front of you. Um, but you hitting them over the head and trying to force them to be interested in what you have to offer is, um, it's never gonna be productive or successful. Amen, amen. Um, I'm curious to know, and, and of course we're generalizing here because there's so many different types of interfaith families and, and children and so forth. But on a high level, from, from your vantage point, my intuition tells me that, um, let's say, interfaith uh, families, you know, they tend to be maybe a little bit less critical of the Jewish world and of Israel, for example, and of, um, you know, just different types of things in the Jewish community where they are or national or international um, Versus I find that the most critical people of Jews are the hardcore Jews themselves, uh, whether it's the, you know, the Haredim being critical of the Chilonim, the secular, whether it's the Israeli Jews being critical of the Jews in the diaspora or vice versa. Um, would you say that in your experience, you find interfaith couples to be a little bit less critical because, you know, they're, I would maybe put them in like the discovery phase, certainly. Mm -hmm the partner that's not Jewish um, and so they're more interested in like well let me just learn more about what's going on as opposed to having an opinion about everything versus the quote-unquote quintessential Jew which is like no I know everything you know two Jews three opinions we know how it goes uh, and this is what's wrong with your Ju Judaism and this is what's wrong with Israel and this is what's wrong with do you find that to be true based on my intuition or do you see something else? I think often for interfaith couples and families not always there is a sense of outsiderness, a sense of even though I am a part of this organization, I am a, a active member of a synagogue, I am 
you know, I send my children to this camp, whatever the thing is, um, that maybe that there is a way that often interfaith couples or families still somehow consider themselves outside of this. And uh, in the sense of like, don't feel like they are close enough to be able to criticize, um, which I think is a really important part of being able to criticize something is that often you need to feel like you are part of it to be able to speak out against it. Uh, and if you don't have that like experience of having that insider feeling or connection, um, you're not going to be able to uh, feel at home enough or maybe comfortable enough to say, listen, I think you know this is maybe a wrong-headed way of of doing this, or this is something that I see as a you know critique of uh, Jewish life community. Um, but that's not to say that there aren't lots of interfaith couples or families who speak out against um, things that they do see that they think are wrong in Jewish life or Jewish community. Um, but I think it is an interesting question. And I think to the extent that it, that your hypothesis is true, um, I would offer my own theory, which is that the reason for that is um, perhaps uh, a, a setting of the table that, that doesn't quite exist yet, which is that the interfaith couples or families, uh, many don't feel like they are in a place to criticize because of, um, maybe not feeling that sense of belonging or inclusion that we, we might um, want them to have. So take me through the name change to 18 Doors. Yep. Um, you know, first of all, I think it's a genius name. <laughs> By the way, I wanna say two things. One, it's a genius name because it's perfectly describes what you're about. And two, because it does so in a very creative way. You know, if I have to see another organization that somehow throws the word Jew in there or Israel or a play on Jew or it's like come on can we get a little bit more creative so I think just on those two uh points you know I'm, I'm really impressed but take us through the name change um, I know it happened a few years ago but I think there's a good story behind it so why don't you tell us that absolutely there were so many people who told us again and again that the name interfaith family didn't resonate with them that it was something that was it was a point of disconnection rather than connection and didn't represent the diversity of interfaith couples and families who call themselves and identify in lots of different ways from just Jewish to mixed faith or intercultural or um, dual faith or mixed heritage or Jewish and or um, you know, cashews or jubus or blue Jews or any of the like fun cutesy names that um, couples and families often use today. Uh, and so we were finding again and again, people would say like, you know, interfaith families stuff isn't for me because we're just the Jewish family or, you know, I don't identify with um, Judaism as a religion. It's not a faith for me. It's a culture or peoplehood or we're not trying to combine two religions. We are, you know, we each have our own religions that we, um, that we observe separately. 
or we're a couple, we're not a family yet. And so we knew like there were all these challenges to the name interfaith family, even as, you know, it was super descriptive. So really, I think easy for people to understand what, what we were doing and what we were about. But there were all these roadblocks to participation that we just thought, you know, we need to do something about. And so we began this long process of considering whether we ought to change our name. And the marketing firm that we worked with said to us, you know, listen, in this day and age, it's, it's actually incredibly hard to change your name because it's hard to find the URL that is not taken. And so go into it with an open mind that you may not actually find the name that is going to work for all the ways that you need it to work. And so we began this process of brainstorming um, and we knew we wanted a creative name. We didn't want this really descriptive, you know, the center for interfaith families or the center for, you know, for Jewish and family, right? Like we knew we wanted something that was creative because we knew that we were working with couples and families who were used to a world of Pinterest and Instagram and Twitter and the metaverse and Facebook and um, all of the things on social media and off Google that people have come to accept in their daily life, which is that names are imbued with the brand and the values um, that people come to associate with them and not on the word on its own, right? Amazon is not Amazon, uh, but for the fact of we all know of all the different things that, that the company does. And so when we thought about 18 doors, we wanted to think about it the same way of like, what are, um, what are the things that maybe this evokes as people think of it? And so it began this really long brainstorming process and we're really close, I think, to actually saying, you know what, maybe we can make some incremental changes to our, our old name and stick with it and not, um, and not move to it. And then um, in one of the last rounds um, came up with 18 doors. And immediately, I think it was the one um, that resonated with the team that had um, assembled and was brainstorming. And that ultimately um, the board felt confident in and voted to adopt. And that the staff was also excited about and that was really because, as you said, I think 18 Doors encapsulates what we do, um, which is it talks about um, through the 18 Doors, the journeys of experiences that interfaith couples go on, the doors that they open into Jewish life. Um, it talks about the diversity that they bring, right? the doors that they walk through to come to Jewish life. Uh, and the different diverse aspects of um, their lives in fun and interesting ways. Uh, the 18, of course, evokes high and life. Um, so you have, so, you know, an evocation of Jewishness without um, Hebrew language or words, or um, as you said, using the word Jew or Israel. Um, which was consistent with what we were looking for in the brand because we wanted um, there to be an openness to an expansiveness to how um, we were thinking about our work. And then finally, like the homonym of doors and the door door from generation to generation uh, was really a, a fun and important 
um, play on words for us also. So like all of that in one tiny little package, um, we were really excited about and rolled it out in February of 2020, um, which was, I think the only thing uh, that would have been better is um, I think if we had rolled it out six months earlier, but uh, it was really, the timing was fortuitous because if we had gotten to March of 2020 or April and had not rolled out um, the name change in the new website, I think it would have meant um, a totally different experience for us and um, the couples and families who come to us during the pandemic. And the fact that we had this brand new website and name change, I think um, was really important for us actually during the last couple of years. You know, I know that you were part of the organization prior to taking over as CEO in 2015, but obviously being CEO is a very unique chair to sit in. And so I'm just curious if you could share with us, you know, what's one thing that you thought, not just about the organization, but maybe the sort of interfaith world in general, that you thought about it before taking over as CEO that you have since learned, you know, is just completely different or even quite false from your original thought? I think one thing that I didn't know that I know now is the number of policies that exist across Jewish communal life that are meant to keep interfaith couples or families on the outside. Um, or I should say that a little differently, or not meant to keep interfaith couples or families on the outside, but that is the impact of the policy. Um, and that ranges from anywhere from um, rabbinic associations making the decision to not allow the rabbis in their association to officiate at the weddings of interfaith couples um, to uh, seminaries who will not allow uh, Jews who are seriously dating or engaged or married to people who aren't Jewish into their seminary to um, youth groups who don't allow youth group officers to date um, to date other kids who are not Jewish. Um, you know, I think there are just a number of policies that continue to exist in Jewish life today that um, the impact is on the children of interfaith couples and families and, uh, and on the interfaith couples and families themselves. And the impact of that is that they step away from Jewish life in really meaningful ways because they see that they're seen as, as one of our past board chairs would say suboptimal and nobody wants to be suboptimal. Of course. Of course not. Um, I want to ask you a question about Israel. Um, you know, we know that there's been a huge generational gap, for example, with my generation and certainly the generation below me, me being 33 years old. Um, and what I would say, uh, your generation and my parents' generation, uh, which I don't think is the same generation, by the way, I think you're much younger than my parents, uh, but, uh, and then my grandparents, right? And so like sort of millennial and down versus millennial and up, if you will. Um, you know, the thing that I have observed is that, you know, people that grew up in a time where Israel was not strong or as strong as it is today, that there were wars 
frequently and each war literally could have been the end of Israel. People that grew up in the shadow of the Holocaust, uh, either them themselves or kids that were raised in such a household um, versus, you know, today the Holocaust is only two generations removed, but still not, not yesterday, so to speak. Uh, Israel is an incredibly strong country today. I, I don't think there's anyone who questions that. Um, the, the Israeli Jew is a much different Jew than pre-state Israel in many cases. Um, and, you know, obviously Israel still has its issues, both internally, but also in the Middle East. But I think by and large, where Israel is today and moving forward is in a much different place. And therefore, I think the people that have grown up with sort of this new Israel, if you will, um, over the last it's called two decades, you know, think and look at the country in a much different lens. Not everyone, to be sure, but a lot of people. And I'm just curious from the standpoint of sort of the interfaith community and maybe even the, the partner, if you will, um, who is not Jewish or, or who converted, um, how do, how do a lot of them think about Israel in terms of the relationship that they have with Israel? Um, would you say it's much different than sort of the, the quote unquote quintessential Jew or um, are there similarities? Like where, where do you see that? I think there is actually a lot that we don't know about interfaith couples and families and what they do or don't think about and connect with and I think one thing that we see here often is that there's, there just isn't a connection for spouses and family members who aren't Jewish to Israel. Um, you know, maybe there is for folks who are really connected and close to their roots in another religion. You know, I think of my Catholic in-laws um, who recently went to Israel with a group uh, of other Christian families because of um, the importance of the historic sites in Israel. And so I think for them, you know, they would say we're really connected to Israel. Um, but I think for, for many folks, as you said, generationally, um, there isn't a strong connection if they didn't grow up Jewish um, that you see in earlier, older generations. Uh, and I think that there's a number of challenges that come along with that. Um, the rise of anti-Zionism on campuses and concurrently anti-Semitism uh, and the drop in the number of millennials and younger generations who understand um, and are aware of the Holocaust uh, are, you know, the, the number of, of young folks in the United States who are educated about the Holocaust is abysmal. Um, and I, it is also one of the things that 18 Doors is working on is we think we have an important role to play in the fight against anti-Semitism um, and in making particularly family members who aren't Jewish aware of the impact of anti-Semitism 
on their Jewish family members and spouses and to open up the dialogue and conversation between um, family members and to also build for family members who aren't Jewish, the tools and the strength and the resources and education that they need to become upstanders and to be calling out uh, different aspects around anti-Semitism. So I think there is, um, not to pivot away from your original question, uh, I think there is, just as with anti-Semitism, I think there's a lot of work to be done uh, around educating interfaith couples and families um, and even the broader younger Jewish community about Israel and its history, as well as, um, and the ways that that ties into the Holocaust. And um, I think there are so many ways that we can do that, um, that are interesting and meaningful, and also that lead to the conversations I think that we all need to have, which are not, are not easy conversations by any means, but are critically important, I think, to our continuing strength and Israel's continuing strength and, um, and just really something that we need to think about, um, both the connection between Israel and diaspora and also the ways that young people think about Israel. Um, and listen, there are many, many organizations who are doing much more work in this area. We, we don't do um, at this point really any, um, any education around Israel. We do very, very little other than connecting with our partner Honeymoon Israel and, and encouraging folks, uh, interfaith couples and families to go to Israel and to experience and to learn about it and to experience the beauty and the um, interesting things that uh, that it has to offer in so many different ways. So um, I think that there is uh, so much work to be done in this area. No, I appreciate that. Um, I wanna get to one of your most recent initiatives, which we talked a little bit about before we hit record, uh, which is a Jewish wedding ceremony builder. I know you're super excited about this. You told me about it, now I'm super excited about it. So break it down for us, what's going on with this? Yeah, so this came out of um, actually another program that we have, which is the Jewish Clergy Officiation Referral Service, which is a way for couples and families who don't have um, rabbis or cantors in their lives, or for one reason or another, they're not able to, to help them on a particular life cycle event, to, um, for them to come to our website and to find out information about connecting with a rabbi or a cantor for their wedding or baby naming or conversion or funeral um, and they you know receive profiles of different rabbis who might be able to help them and um, their pictures and uh, testimonials of different events that that rabbi has done and um, a little bit about the type of approach that the rabbi or cantor will take and um, you know over the this past year we had about 4,000 requests to the Jewish clergy officiation referral service uh, which then we support with not only connecting them to a rabbi or cantor um, that hopefully is a good match for them, but also then um, they receive different types of resources from 18 doors. They can sign up for our Jewish wedding email series. Uh, they can uh, sign up for different programs that we run about planning a Jewish wedding. 
Um, but all that being said, one of the things that we are aware of is the growing trend among interfaith couples and really all couples getting married today to be married not by a clergy person, but by a friend or family member because people want someone to marry them, to stand with them on this like very important day in their lives. They want someone who has a connection to them and who understands and loves them. And, um, and for some people that's not, uh, they don't have a clergy person, whether they're Jewish or not in their lives who, who fills that role. And yet for many interfaith couples, they still want a Jewish wedding. Uh, they still want aspects of Jewish culture or tradition. And, um, and so we began thinking about how we might help couples who are being married by an officiant, a friend or family member, uh, for one reason or another, who've chosen not to be married by Jewish clergy um, or weren't able to find Jewish clergy who um, were able to marry them. So we put together a Jewish wedding ceremony builder which is, this is phase one, and we're really excited about it. It came out a couple months ago, and uh, there'll be subsequent phases um, that will build on some of what we've done here. And really what it allows is, is for interfaith couples or the officiants for their wedding to come through our website and to see um, different aspects of Jewish wedding rituals that they might be interested in incorporating into their ceremony. And then for each of those wedding rituals, they can then pick from one of three different uh, variations in terms of language. And, um, and so couples can come to our website and they figure out what rituals they would like to include, or maybe they'd like to include all of them. Uh, and they choose which version of each ritual they'd like um, they, that, that resonates with them. And at the end of it, it pulls together an editable Word document that um, couples can bring as a jumping off point or a discussion point with their officiant, um, or the officiant can come um, to the website and learn themselves. And it's really a way for couples uh, to think about Jewish wedding rituals and traditions um, even when they make, may make the decision um, for lots of reasons that they are not going to be married by Jewish clergy. Um, and for some of them, we know anecdotally um, that when couples have a relationship with a rabbi or a cantor that they feel like gets them and knows them, that some of them say like, oh, geez, well, if I had known you when I was getting married, I would have loved if you had married me. Um, and so for some, it also opens up the opportunity, though this is not the, the end goal. The end goal is really for interfaith couples to have um, a great experience and to be able to incorporate the rituals and traditions that they want um, in this most important day of their lives. Uh, but for some of them, it is a jumping off point to further relationship with uh, rabbis or other Jewish clergy who might help them along the way. Uh, so we're really excited about that and excited about where it goes. Um, and just this opportunity for to help interfaith couples in, um, in what we think is really a, a new and unique way. Wow, that's really amazing. And I just want to say, you know, the work that you're doing, I know running my own private company, of course, but still organization. Uh, sometimes it can feel very lonely at the top. 
sometimes it can feel very thankless, but really the work that, that you and 18 Doors is doing is amazing. I want to ask you one more question, and I'm sorry for jumping around here, but a trend that I'm noticing, and of course I live in Tel Aviv, which is, you know, we call it in Hebrew, Medinat Tel Aviv, the state of Tel Aviv, to imply that it's not part of Israel, it's a state within the state of Israel. It has its own life of its own, uh, so to speak. Um, and so, you know, obviously I'm, I'm very much around, by and large, um, secular folks, uh, folks that really are repelled by what religion is considered in Israel, right, which is very orthodox, ultra-orthodox. Um, we know that that goes into politics here and it goes into other sociological uh, aspects of the country, like the army, for example. So I'm noticing that uh, a lot of Israelis are dating and, and also marrying non-Jewish uh, people and, and not non-Jewish Arabs that live in Israel, rather, um, you know, when an Israeli does their what they call after the army trip, you know, they meet a whole bunch of people around the world so they can meet a significant other that way. Israelis love to travel in general. Um, so they're always, and they're quite social. So, um, you know, they, they are uh, sort of uh, in a lot of situations where around the world they can meet people uh, who are non-Jewish and, and develop relationships with them. And also a lot more non-Jews are coming to Israel, whether it's for work, whether it's for fun. Um, and so these, these people are, uh, you know, obviously meeting Israelis here in Israel and developing, you know, relationships and so forth. Um, in fact, there's a really ironic trend right now that a lot of Israelis are dating non-Jewish Germans, uh, mm. which I just think is fascinating because if you were to tell both of their grandparents' generation that, you know, back, let's say, 70, 80 years ago, that... Uh, in two generations, not only will there be a state of Israel for the Jews, not only will it be one of the, you know, the best states in the world, but then your grandchildren and their grandchildren are going to be having uh, romantic relations, so to speak, and potentially even developing families. I, I paint this picture, very big and wide picture, to ask you that, you know, I know your work is mainly focused in the United States, um, but and I know you do have the Honeymoon in Israel Partnership, but I just am curious, like, to me, a lot of things that you're doing in the States can be exported around the world and certainly in Israel, which has the biggest Jewish population today. Just curious, like, how do you see the sort of Israeli aspect of this bigger picture? Are you, I'm sure there's a lot of Israelis that live in the States that have, you know, get involved, so to speak, in inter, interfaith marriages or families or whatever. Um, like, what is sort of, as I'm painting this picture, what, what comes to mind? Yep. Yeah, I mean, I you know what comes to, what comes to mind is that when when we live in an open society, when right the the decrease in anti-Semitism over the last five decades, um, other, until really recently in the United States, led to the opening of doors, no pun intended in a way that has allowed the rise in interfaith couples in the United States. It makes sense that, that there is a concurrent rise in interfaith couples in Israel for I think many of the same reasons that there is growing opportunity to connect with people who aren't Jewish 
um, in our everyday lives, whether that's after Israel trips, whether that's um, in the States, go, you know, who we go to school with or live in community with. And one of the things that we see among interfaith couples in particular in the United States, the research shows that, that they're going to, to live in communities um, that are outside, you know, what I call traditional Jewish hubs, that the, the decision-making that they're going to make um, around their lives is may prioritize, um, you know, where can I find affordable housing? Where can I find, uh, where can I find strong school systems for my children? Uh, and being close to or part of the Jewish hub is is not going to rank in you know one of the top three priorities. And I wonder, you know, what the if there is an analogous situation in Israel around um, who how decisions are made for for particularly for secular folks, um, and what then. Um, what sets the stage then for an increase in the number of interfaith couples in Israel? And I think that that's, that's really probably a really pretty complicated, complex answer. And I think the thing that I would say is that, you know, 18 doors, we are certainly our work is focused in the United States and Canada. And also we know um, from our website traffic that we do have a significant um, percentage of folks who are visiting our website and using our resources from Israel. And I'd anticipate that lots of them are, are part of interfaith couples and families. And um, that I think there's, you know, perhaps an opportunity for us to think about how we can support the couples and families in Israel um, who are facing some similar challenges, I think, to folks in the U.S. Um, but some really different challenges also uh, because they live in a Jewish state and uh, challenges around uh, citizenry and around uh, officiation at weddings, the recognition of marriages that are, um, that are challenging. And, uh, and I think it, it, I would love for us to think about the ways that we support um, particularly couple interfaith couples who are living in Israel. And it's not work that we do right now, uh, but it is, it's something that we're aware of as a growing population uh, that maybe uh, that we can help support and foster the sense of inclusion and belonging uh, that I think we all deserve as part of Jewish life. Amen. Amen. I think that's an amazing place to end the episode. Jody, thank you so, 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 so much for doing this. You are truly one of the Jewish people's most profound and pertinent people. Keep doing the great work and thank you for taking the time. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks, Josh.